administration, the White House, uh, they were they had basically a contract thrust upon them that they were forced to accept, and it, the strike was was stopped, and a lot of their demands were not met. You know, but nonetheless, the workers themselves and their union have continued to raise red flags of warning about impending disasters right along with the ad they're advocating they do for, you know, better working conditions and safer rail outcomes and, you know, more sick time and stuff like that. So it is, it is, it goes hand in hand with their demands for their, you know, their individual demands for their, the better treatment at work and better pay, that they're also trying to create a better safe environment for rail traffic moving around this country, which means for communities all around this country too. Um, you know, despite uh, despite that, though, you know, during his recent State of the Union address, President Biden did not mention uh, the plight of the rail workers, and nor did he even happen to mention the environmental crisis that is going on right now in in Ohio. So that that did seem a little curious, although it may have been too fresh to have fitted into the uh, the speech that he'd written out. Um, but you know, just to sort of wrap up our show because we are running out of time here. Uh, you know, when another train derails, and, you know, it certainly will, because this has already happened and will continue to happen, uh, and when we see, you know, new images of balls of fire, you know, rising up out of the disaster and black clouds, you know, all over the, the skies of Ohio or New Jersey or any other, you know, community or state in this country, uh, know that it's not just a freak accident, but in fact, it is a systemic problem with lucrative you know, lucrative railroad companies putting profit over the people that work for them and the people that, that their, their rolling stock roll past, you know, the communities that they go through. Uh, and they're doing it again and again. Um, and know that there are answers out there, that the union railroad workers have been clearly and repeatedly stating, you know, have putting forward the answers for years. Uh, and now, hopefully, as a result in the aftermath of this disaster, we might finally begin to actually listen to them and to try and put in place some of the things that the workers in the front line of that industry have been advocating for for years now. Um, we are out of time, but thank you so much for tuning in to Labor Radio. We will be back with you next month. I am Michael Cathcart. And I'm Elliot Gillen. Have a great night. Hi, this is Judy Collins, and you're listening to KBOO in Portland. Baby, you understand me now If sometimes you see that I'm mad Don't you know no one alive can always be an angel When everything goes wrong you see some bad But I'm just a soul whose intentions are Good evening, you're listening to Prison Pipeline. My name is Emma, and I use she and her pronouns. And we're talking tonight with Bobby Bostick. Um, we've done a show about Bobby before, and he is recently released um, from prison, and we're just really happy to have him on the show. Bobby, welcome to Prison Pipeline. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you. So, Bobby, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, okay. My name is Bobby Bostick. Uh, as this pipe, as this podcast is called Prison Pipeline, uh, my story began early. Uh, 
before prison, I was a youth living in poverty, committing petty crimes to survive. And eventually that led to when I was 16, I committed a robbery that changed my life. And at 16, I was convicted of 17 crimes for one robbery incident. And I was sentenced to die in prison. I was given 241 years. And that was the most time any Jew and I ever got in the state of Missouri. So um, my journey in prison, I'll let you ask me further questions about that. But that's the beginning of the story that at 16, I was convicted of those crimes from a robbery incident that happened in a 20-minute span. I was given 241 years, though no one was seriously injured. Uh, it, w it wasn't a case where people were seriously injured or nothing like that. Um, but the judge felt it necessary to send a message to other kids. And she gave me um, 241 years and told me that I would die in prison. But as I said right here today, a free man, I didn't die in prison. What was it like when you were 16? I mean, to have that happen to you, how did that feel? Um, it was it was something I didn't think I'd be able to get through, but I did get through it. And as I said in my autobiography, it'll be released in the next two months. What I was saying in my autobiography is that it was my childhood experiences, those rough things I went through as a kid, even though it was harsh living in that type of extreme poverty. In a sense, that hardship prepared me to deal with journey of dealing with prison and what I had to deal with in prison. So uh, we go through some things, as they say, for a reason, but now I understand why I went through such a uh, harsh childhood because had I not went through that, I wouldn't have survived prison. What What about your childhood like helped prepare you for being incarcerated? Uh, well, uh, in prison, you need money to survive. You need money to buy commissary because they meals or you know, something you can't eat a lot of times. So uh, I went hungry a lot in prison. And as a child, I went hungry because we didn't have money to buy food. We was on welfare. We went without food. They didn't have a lot of food pantries as they got today. So a lot of times as a kid, I had to go to bed hungry at night or throughout the day. And in prison, I went without food a lot. So that prepared me for that. Uh, dealing with the reality of hard circumstances prepared me as a child on every aspect, uh, no lights, no sometimes, no gas, um, you know, holes in my shoes as a kid being teased for that. Just going through extreme poverty, um, alcoholism, drugs all around me in my household, up and down the street. Um, so when I went to prison and experienced violence and saw violence, um, it wasn't nothing that was new to me. It was a new kind of violence, but I was surrounded by these things on the streets. Uh, anger that people had in prison. I saw that same anger and frustration in my community. So <clears throat> all those things prepared me to deal with what you have to deal with in prison. Um, having hope that things would get better as a child. I always had hope and faith that one day we'll get off welfare. One day we had the things we needed to survive. So uh, in prison, I had hope to get out of prison one day, hoping that when I got out, I'd be successful. So I just prepared myself in prison to be successful. So everything I could translate back to my childhood, to my, uh, to those kind of prison experiences I experienced always to the day I walked out. Considering the kinds of um, environments that you were, you, you lived in as a child, do you think that there was any fairness or justice in 
the sentence that you received, was there anything about it that was justified? No. I mean, the judge herself came back 23 years later and said she made a mistake and um, she wished she wouldn't have gave me that time. The victim said that they didn't want me to have that much time. Um, no, it wasn't justified at all. Do you think that there's ever any justification for sending someone to prison? Yeah. I mean, it's a fact some people need to be in prison because of uh, mentalities that that's very dangerous and need to be in. Some some people need to be in prison. I just left prison. I did 27 years in prison. Some people need to be in prison. Uh, I understand people say we need to abolish prisons, but it got to be a way to do that to where we still can keep society safe. What do you think would have been a fair sentence for something that you had done? Like, do you think that you could have learned whatever you needed to learn in a couple of years inside, yeah. or do you think that you even needed to go to prison for what you did? Yeah, I needed to go to prison because people was harmed, and it changed life. It changed uh, some people' lifestyle and where they live. So I, I, I harm people. So yeah, I needed to go to prison. Uh, I can't put a time on someone else's pain and what they what the victims would have thought was sufficient, but. Uh, I would say the jury recommended 30 years. I'd still end up doing 25 years on that. Well, at least I knew I had a chance. So even though it was kind of harsh, maybe that would have been fair. So uh, I just say uh, whatever the way it is now, I'm out. So I, I can't really uh, put a time limit on what would have been fair. Mm-hmm. So there was a pretty big campaign that Damien, um, that Bob Damien, uh, help to raise awareness about your case. Can you talk about what kind of support you got while you were on the inside for this incredibly harsh sentence that you were given as a 16-year-old? I got a lot of support from family that took a movement to get me out. It wasn't an overnight movement. It just slowly built, and it built to the point where it, it was a movement that couldn't be ignored, and the Missouri legislature took notice and passed Bobby Bossy law that allowed me to get out of prison. Did you get um, did you get like letters from people, phone calls? Did you ever get interviewed? Yeah, I got interviewed by uh, TV stations, radio stations, newspapers. Uh, that was all a part of uh, the movement, growing to a point where people felt that the story needed to be told. And once it got told more and more, that's when people said we need to do something about it. And here I sit today. How how were you treated by people on the inside? Were you um? Did, did people on the inside respect you or did they know about the kind of attention that your case was getting outside? Yeah, everybody in prison knew because we see it on TV. My Sally, up and down the hall, people just like, man, I sent you on TV. Keep fighting because uh, they saw the fight that I was doing way before me it came when I wouldn't get no responses from letters, no phone calls, getting answered and stuff like that. They saw me struggle for years before I got to that point. So when I got to that point, it was like, man, if anybody deserves it's media attention and all that is you because you fought hard for it. While we was doing, we was doing playing and getting high, whatever we was doing, you was fighting all the years, man, it finally paid off. So we salute you and we finna try to do what you did to try to get out of it too. So you inspired all of us. So it was an inspirational thing. Can you talk a little bit about your time in prison? Um, so you did 27 years. Were you in one facility or did you get moved around? Yeah, uh, you get moved around once you're somewhere so long and once you get familiar with the staff. So I got transferred, I'll say average, I do three, 
for five years at one prison, then I went to another prison. So, yeah, I was transferred to different prison several times. So you got moved around a lot. Did you have a chance to make friendships and to form, you yeah. know? We'd be a lifetime bonds in her. And uh, it's a lot of guys I left behind that I'm out on their behalf now. I hope, I'm hosting a rally for one of my best friends, Sunday at church. I mean, Saturday at church, let me use a space that holds up to 1,500 people. We're going to try to at least get five, 600 people to the rally to support his cause of innocence. Um, so I accept calls. I go take their sister and brother's money when I got it. Uh, I just never forget them dudes because we, we built a, a familiar bond in there. And you can never forget somebody you walked the yard with that many years, no matter if it was only two or three years. Uh, every walk that y'all took on the yard with conversation that was sincere, it meant something. So all those guys still mean something. What role did church and religion play in your life while you were incarcerated? Did you have any kind of a religion or a spiritual experience while you were in prison? Yeah, uh, I was a Muslim in prison. Uh, like my fourth year in prison, um, I was just get high every day on marijuana, and eventually it stopped giving me the sensation that it did, the release that it did, and eventually that just led to me reading books. And I told myself I'd never be one of the type of spiritual dudes in prison because I used to stay high and I used to look at them dudes like they was kind of crazy or something until I started reading book after book after book and realized that it was something greater in the universe than the little gangs or street corners we living ourselves to. And I'm like, man, it's more to the world than this. And that led me to discover uh, or to seek discover, discover, discover God and to uh, just have some type of foundation because I felt lost. I needed something bigger than me. And when drugs or marijuana is a drug, it stopped working. So I turned to to spirituality, slowly reading the Quran. And then when I started reading more and more, studying Islam, I came to a spiritual understanding and it changed my life. And that was and then after that, I just became a whole different person on a different level, was worshiping God, serving them, and uh, that changed my life, and I ain't been the same since. I've just been trying to live a certain way. That's great. Are you still a practicing Muslim? Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, it's a lifestyle. It's a lifetime thing. So, yeah, still do it. Oh, that's wonderful. What was what was the hardest thing about being incarcerated for 27 years? Like, of everything that you had to deal with, what was the hardest thing to deal with? The hardest thing to deal with was the ignorance that you're surrounded by in prison. Two, missing my family. And then third, last but not least, is missing women, companionship of women. Think about women all day, every day, and you can't have them. So that was torture. But as a man, that's what you think about women all day. So that was hard. That was super hard there. Do you have a Do you have a girlfriend now or um, a significant partner? Well, I, I'm still, yeah. Um, um, well, you know, I just got out, so. What about your family? Tell me about your family. How was your, um, how did your, how did you keep in touch with your family while you were in prison? Uh, they came and saw me uh, once a month, twice a month, depending on how the month went. Took turns. My nieces that wasn't born, they started driving up there to see me on their own. Um, phone calls every day and letters. When people felt like writing, there's you no know, technology out there now, so not too many people were doing old-fashioned snail mail, but... I did that a lot with just regular pen pals, but my family, they was my number one support though. That's great. It sounds like your family was really there for you. Can you tell me a little bit about your family? Oh yeah, I got a brother, 
uh, name Michael, he 49. My sister, she, her name Mark Q, she 48. My little brother, Sean, he, he got killed in the streets, uh, living the same lifestyle that I once lived before I went to prison. Um, I got a host of nieces and nephews, great nieces too. They're always around, so, you know, just seeing them, picking them up, just joy. I don't have kids now. I want to have some, but just seeing the joy and all that on my little nieces' faces and just seeing kids being kids is the greatest thing in life. Oh, that's so wonderful. It sounds like you had a lot of support even while you were on the inside. Yeah, that's great. I'd like to talk about race a little bit. Um, you know, Missouri is the state where, I mean, where the Black Lives Matter movement really kind of gained ascendancy. I mean, the the, kid, the murder of George Floyd, the protests um, outside of St. Louis and Ferguson. Uh, Missouri has a reputation as a state that is it's it's one of those states that's has a reputation as being somewhat racist in terms of how African Americans are treated. Can you talk about race? How did race play into your life story and into your sentencing? Do you do you feel that race was a factor? Well, ironically, in my case, I had a black judge, so that was a black judge that sentenced me to two hundred forty-one years. Nine of my jurors was black. So uh, that wasn't something I could say per se in my particular case. Uh, we got nine black juries and nine black judges, and some of the victims was black, so I can't ever say racism. So I don't use that in my particular situation, even though it exists all around us, whatever state we're in, Missouri just got a particular reputation for being one of the worst as a, as a racist state. but. In my particular circumstance, I can't use that card because it didn't necessarily happen like that. Great. Thank you so much for that answer. I really appreciate it. So now that you're out, what are some of your plans? Oh, uh, well, uh, I got a nonprofit. We did a, We do like monthly pop-ups and just give away free toilet paper, food, soap, deodorant, toiletries, uh, clothes, shoes. We did that Saturday. Uh, like if you Google my name, you can see all that on the news. Google, if you Google Bobby Bostic, you can see like the recent things I've been doing since I've been out. Or you, if you go to YouTube slash Bobby Bostic, you can see uh, some me out there at some of those pop up events. We adopt families, single mothers who need things. I got a book called. Well, by the way, I got seven published books that's on Amazon. Um, anybody can go to Amazon.com slash Bobby Bostic and find my books. Two of the books about prison, one of them about the younger generation, why kids misunderstood. Uh, the book I wrote called Dear Mama, it's my mother life story, but the book is called A Life and Struggles of a Single Mother. So based on her name, and I didn't want her, her legacy being vain, I created a nonprofit organization with my sister called Dear Mama, based on that book. And that organization is how we do those uh, giveaways, even though it's out of my own pocket right now because I don't have grants, I don't know how to write grants. So we do things like that. We adopt families and they tell us what size or shoes the kids need, what pants and shirts, and we go buy it and give it to them. So uh, also, um, I've been going to high school speaking. I've been going to the juvenile detention center speaking. So I'm staying very busy and active, just doing all the things I dream about in prison. When you <clears throat> when you go speak um, to kids, what do you tell them? What do you talk to them about? I just use my story. 
you know, like some of the places I've been speaking, I used to be in those same places, juvenile facilities or high school I used to be at. And I just tell them, look what happened to me. When I spoke in the school that day, look what I ended up in 241 years So uh, the importance, explain to them the importance of education. I got an associate's degree working on my bachelor's degree. I got six or seven classes to get that. So when I tell them um, about what they need to do and how they need to do it, I'm talking from experience, not somebody who read a criminal justice book or went to school for psychological wealth. I'm telling them from hard-earned experience what I what happened to me at 16 and what they should and should not do to avoid what I went through, how they should take their hustle skills and become just legal entrepreneurs and how they can get all the nice things they want by working and building their credit company and not having to uh, commit crime to get it. Yeah, uh, I did that with different uh, things. Uh, the skills that I learned now is reading, writing, and being able to translate that into action, inspiring other people to do those things. And that's a skill I learned in prison. So it's a lot of things I learned in prison that I'm using. I heard empathy for people, understanding where other people coming from. Uh, you just grow in prison and just keep keep uh, trying to apply those things. That's what I've been doing since I've been out. What, what are some of the dangers that kids face today? I mean, the at-risk uh, kids that you're talking about. Uh, well, at-risk youth, they at risk. That's that says itself. They are at-risk youth. And look at the news and statistics. A lot of that crime is happening as youth, and they hit it down the wrong path. And it's like, they're for jail, and it's like, it's, it's a better way, though. And it's only people like me that was part of the problem that had the solution. I was out there doing the same thing they was doing. And look what happened, even though we always think that won't happen to me or it can't happen. I don't understand why you don't think it can, but it, it can happen. Just mm -hmm. uh, want to explain to them what's what and how easy they can end up in my situation. What do you think that society needs to do to also make things better for kids? Uh, well, the answer to that is we need to um, create more jobs for them and help them develop their talent and skills, whether they want to be artists, musicians, uh, gamers, coders, computer coders, whatever they want to do, we need to get them them opportunities. Do more to reach out to let them know those opportunities are available. Not abandon them and try to understand where their anger coming from, why they so rebellious, why they so materialistic. I wrote a book called A Generation Misunderstood. That book is available on Amazon. Inside of that book, I'm explaining why kids are the way they is and the solution to the problems that plague teenagers. Uh, that book, uh, it lays it all out. Uh, kids are misunderstood, and we just need to redirect their energy towards something positive because no matter how we look at the TV and say these kids are lost today, they still the future. So if we say they lost, then our future is lost because and our parents looked at us and like, this generation is lost too. But look how this generation turning out. We, 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 we producing uh, great politicians, great uh, doctors the, the, um, to come up with careers for cancer or uh, careers for uh, COVID. You know, we producing people of the generation doing great things, but they once rid us off and said we was the lost generation. Now this generation next, that's why that book I wrote is called A Generation Misunderstood. Generation next, that generation is misunderstood. But they are the future though, so we can't ever abandon our youth and say they lost. We just got to reach them. Like I was saying, do more to reach them with the resources that society do have available already. We need to uh, use those resources more for the youth. You must have learned a lot about what you know kids 
were experiencing going into prison, having been a kid yourself going into prison. So that must really help you understand more about how to connect with uh, young kids today. Yep, that's what I love to do. It's a, it's mm-hmm. a uh, that's my lifetime passion, Reach, reaching you, trying to keep them from doing what I did. So are you out now? Like, are you completely out? Are you are you still on parole or do you have? I still got 241 years as we speak. I'm on parole with a 200. They never changed my sentence. So I can go, you know, it's dangerous being on parole like that, but that's the only way they was going to let me out. And they changed the law. Only said I go for parole. And I made a, I got out there because my record spoke for itself as far as rehabilitation. That's how I got out on parole. So as we speak right now, I still got 241 years. So you're on parole for the rest of your life. What does that mean? Does that mean you have to stay in Missouri? I can move somewhere else, but I have to transfer my parole somewhere else. In Missouri, where it works, they say if you stay out of trouble for five or six years, they can petition to take you off parole. But technically, they can keep you on parole for the rest of your life if they wanted to. But if you stay out of trouble and... uh, petitioning maybe uh, let you off parole so that's what I'm focusing on file the clemency I'm trying to get the governor to commute my sentence to the original 30 years that the jury recommended and if you do that then you know I'd be scot-free off parole I mean I have a year or two of parole left but right now it's looking like you know I would definitely be on there the next five years or more so I just got to work that process through and just enjoy my freedom until the time comes for something better to happen. So while you're on parole, you have to report to a parole officer. Do you have to get a job? Yeah, I get a job. I mean, they can't make you get a job. But like me, uh, uh, you should work. But for me, I'm a, um, as of now, I'm just an entrepreneur selling books, uh, giving speeches. Some places pay me a, a stipend and that, that money there. It's what been getting me through the speaking engagements, uh, uh, money for my books, which I sell, and that's it right now. Because mm-hmm. uh, I'm more focused on being an advocate for you in a position I take any job. I have to be outreach. I have to be out in the field, in the streets, talking to the youth, trying to reach them, not behind the desk, just adding up statistics or talking. I need to be out interacting with them on a personal level and getting the resources. What? So the law that was passed in your name, the Bobby Bostick law, how has that changed sentencing? I mean, can it, it just seems absurd that anybody could even impose a sentence that's like the kind that you got. Yeah, the, the, the Bobby Bostick law, is, it don't stop that. The only thing it do is that if another juvenile get 100 years, it allow him to go for pro after he served 15 years. Any juvenile, anybody else in 18 in Missouri that committed a crime, um, like mine, um, they go off a pro after they serve 15 years. So it get them hope that with the time they get, it just get them hope to get out. But I'm gonna say since Grand versus Florida came out, even Missouri trying to take a different approach to juveniles. It's just like right now is one of those seasons where a lot of crime happening and it's youth. Everybody knows it's youth, so that makes people want to start giving them horse time again and all that. So that trend may go back up because a lot of it's caught there, some murders and shootings. It's the youth, and that makes them scared. So it makes them want to punish these people harder when they should be. Mm-hmm. The only mm-hmm. thing they can think about is stopping crime, but the crimes go up and down. So there's statistics that tell the whole story. So 
statistics never tell all the story. Well, Bobby, it's really been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to us on Prison Pipeline. Um, how can people find out more about you, about your books, if they want to find out um, where to find those sorts of things? Where can they learn learn more about you? Okay, if people want to learn more about me, they can um, email me at bobbybostick27 at gmail.com if they want to reach out to me. Uh, my books can be found on amazon.com under my name, Bobby Bostick. Uh, you can just Google, Google the name Bobby Bostick or you can go to YouTube slash Bobby Bostick and see all the videos of my story, all the news, you know, interviews and stuff like that. Um, again, you can reach me by email at bobbybostick27 at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at FreeBobbyBostick or you can follow me on Instagram at free at free Bobby Bostic. Uh you know, so those are various ways to contact me. And that's the way to find out what I'm doing and how I'm doing and to follow me on those platforms. So um I hope I said something to inspire people or change the way people look at life, to never take anything for granted and to always appreciate the small things in life. And understand that we all can be one mistake away from doing something that, that can drastically change our lives so we need to see examples of what happened to people like me and just be more patient in life get the things we want and to show more empathy towards others and find solutions instead of only seeing the problem work towards a solution and then we can address the problem instead of just complaining about it. let's work towards saying and act now on those things that we want to do to change what we see wrong with society uh, starting with ourselves our own community family and then the larger city, state, and the world around us. So we all can uh, make moves towards changing the world. we more powerful than we know. We just got to tap into our own self to understand how powerful we is. So people who don't take the time to do that, Jill taught me to take the time to do that. And that's how you able to see me manifesting so many great things because when you tap into yourself, there's no limit to the things you can accomplish. Most people never sit down to look within themselves to find themselves, but uh, prison, well, it don't make you do that. I chose to use my time to do that with. So I encourage everybody to take the time to sit down and find yourself, and then you'll see your own potential and your own power in life to change uh, the things you see in the world. We're not powerless to change things, so once we tap into our own greatness, we can reach heights that we never thought we could, but we gotta first sit down and get in touch with our inner self and our inner self will lead us to our life purpose and once we live our life purpose there's nothing we can't do so we just got to find ourselves and our life purpose and live it to the fullest and then we can help uh, change the conditions we live in at home on our street and in our neighborhoods in our city our state and the world and it goes on. So we just got to find ourselves. So I heard people to do that. Thank you. We've been talking tonight with um, Bobby Bostick, who was sentenced to 241 years in prison as a 16-year-old in Missouri and was recently released after 27 years. Bobby, thank you so much for joining us on Prison Pipeline. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you all for having me. Baby, you understand me now If sometimes you see that I'm mad 
Some bad 